The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where we talk to investors, founders, and operators about all things value creation and startups. Today, I am talking to a old good friend of mine, Sean O'Brien, who is the managing director of Overline Capital, which is also a, uh, a seed fund in the Atlanta area, uh, where he is operating uh, through two funds, both he has a seed fund and an opportunity fund equaling about $40 million dollars under management. Sean has a career of being an operator and an investor, spending a good deal of his career as uh, the president and strategic chief strategy officer at PGI, which is a technology company in Atlanta. Uh, prior to that, he spent many, much time in the public equities market, both as a hedge fund manager and um, a uh, retail stockbroker. So m- lots of experience crossing the uh, the chasm between private and public markets. Sean, how are you doing? Hey, uh, David, uh, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. Super excited. Um, I really like talking to guys like you on my podcast because it's just a, it's a really cheap way for me to get smarter. <laughs> well, thanks. We'll see. Yeah, tell me if you feel the same after we finish uh, talking. So, so, Sean, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and Overline and the opportunity you saw in Atlanta, um, and then we could just go from there. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you, David. Uh, yeah, so my background is more of a traditional finance uh, background. I did start uh, for a minute my early career as a retail stockbroker. Uh, I moved on to the institutional side of things back in the very early 90s uh, when I joined a boutique investment bank out of Nashville called Equitable Securities. Um, I spent uh, the rest of that decade in Nashville, Tennessee, and just Loved that platform. Uh, They were ultimately acquired by SunTrust Bank. And about a year later, I decided to make a move onto the buy side of the public equities business. Um, I actually moved out to your neck of the woods, out to Scottsdale, and joined uh, my friend uh, Howard Lindzen, who had a hedge fund at the time. He and I had actually started together in the retail stock uh, business, um, you know, at the same small firm in Texas. And that was before he forayed into venture, right? Yeah. At the time, you know, it was a traditional long, short equity fund, but we also did some private investing. Actually, Howard got me into my very first uh, private investment in the middle 90s. And uh, so we were pretty active on the on the private side as well. Um, I stayed with him for a year and helped him manage his fund. Then I started my own fund, uh, which I ran for about two and a half years, also there in Phoenix, Scottsdale. Um, and then we had a bit of a life change. My wife got pregnant with our twins and her family was here in Atlanta. Uh, we came uh, to Atlanta and I went to work with one of my portfolio companies, uh, thinking it was going to be a one-year gig, and it turned into just an awesome 15-year career. Had a lot of roles. Ultimately, uh, most of my time was spent uh, managing uh, strategy in a global roll-up, 
um, where we acquired lots and lots of businesses and took a small uh, company into a big company and ultimately a PE exit in 2015. Um, you know, that's when I really started leaning into the tech startup scene here in Atlanta. Um, started doing some advisory work um, and um, ultimately uh, I was introduced to Michael Cohn, who is my friend and partner uh, in 2017. Uh, at the time, he was managing partner of Techstars Atlanta. And so he and I knew each other. I was a mentor, heavily engaged in a couple years of his cohorts. When I was getting out of my PE uh, run after we'd sold our company, he was winding up his three-year commitment uh, as Techstars Atlanta MD. And we started looking around the ecosystem and just noticed the recurring theme, which was it was really, really hard at the time uh, here in Atlanta and across the Southeast for founders to get a first institutional check. And so what happened was one of two things. They either went to the coasts and did their dog and pony road shows and went out to Sand Hill Road and um, came back with some capital. Or uh, they sort of passed the hat, you know, around the local community here and raised via a series of angels. Um, and both of those were suboptimal. They were suboptimal for the founders because they didn't have the local institutional support and platform to lean in and help the founders build. And they were suboptimal for the ecosystem because um, there wasn't really the same push on the flywheel that we're hoping to create with Overline. Um, and so Michael and I noticed uh, the trend. We talked about it. We complained about it. And finally, we sat down one day in a coffee shop and said, we should really stop complaining about this and we should change it. And so in 2019, we spent the first half of the year as friends operating as angels uh, with a lens of ultimately leading toward a fund. We did a few deals together that were warehoused uh, for Overline. And then in late 2019, we actually launched our first fund, which was a seed fund. That's our primary fund today. And it's our primary focus. And I can tell you more about that, but I'll take a breath here and uh, let you ask any other questions about the background. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's super fascinating. Uh, so what was the jump like? I mean, I'm just curious, because I've done this. And um, it was incredibly difficult for me to go from wearing the investor hat to jumping into an operating company and then jumping back as an investor. Like, what was the kind of the mind shift that that kind of happened? And, you know, was that difficult for you to kind of get deal flow going again? Yeah, you know what? It uh, it was less of a jump than I had anticipated, candidly. You know, I'd always been, as you mentioned, my background was in public equities, um, but I'd always been a active private investor along the way. And the motion, even though it has some really dis you know uh, important differences, it's in many ways the same. And what I found is in my primary role, I did operate some of the, the divisions of PGI, uh, but my primary role was around finding great founders and convincing them to partner with us and sell us their business ultimately. And so, you know, over my tenure there, I did lots and lots and lots uh, of that. And so the majority of my time was spent in a very similar fashion to what it is now, which is out in the ecosystem, finding the founders that were building interesting things or who had a unique piece of technology or a unique uh, take on a problem statement and uh, talking to them about uh, building together, which, you know, is an interesting way to think about the setup here. And Michael uh, was a very successful founder himself. He's the founder of a company called Cloud Sherpas, which started in his basement, ultimately grew to about 1,200 associates and 200 million in revenue and exited to Accenture. Um, and through that, um, he created a, a deep firsthand knowledge of the founder experience and the founder journey 
which he parlayed into a three-year tenure uh, as Techstars Atlanta MD, did 30 uh, investments while I was there and was an active angel. And so we brought our different perspectives and different um, experiences together into a partnership, which is different than uh, most of the other funds in the region because of our founder operator uh, experience and background. Yeah, that's that's a really great narrative to have both of the the pattern recognition as an investor and somebody that understands the macro and kind of the micro markets as well as the operational support. So you go out, you see a, a lack of seed funding in Atlanta, um, and then you decided you wanted to to offer some institutional capital for your constituents. I should say maybe in the southeast. So where uh, what what was kind of like the underlying thesis and what you wanted to invest in? at Overline? And then how did you think about portfolio construction? Yeah. And, you know, I'll say it's changed because the market has changed on your last point on portfolio construction. But backing up, uh, we set out to be an intentionally generalist fund and to have a really wide aperture uh, when it comes to selecting uh, founders that we want to support and back. Um, And so we have two primary screens. The first is uh, a regional mandate. Uh, so we exist to support founders that are building here across the Southeast, um, which is basically from D.C. down to Louisiana and down through uh, Florida. Uh, the second is we're looking for exceptional founders. Um, we prefer founding teams. Uh, we prefer founders that have an organic and authentic connection to the problem that they're solving. Um, and we look for uh, founders that are highly coachable um, and that value uh, the type of uh, smart uh, capital that we hope to bring to the table. Outside of that, we'll look at just about any industry and just about any business model. We'll, we'll kind of stay away from heavily regulated things like life sciences and biotech. But other than that, it's wide open. And our portfolio of 21 investments in the seed fund really reflects that general lens. We have everything from tracking space satellites and making space flights safer to alternative protein uh, based, you know, food and uh, snacks for backyard chickens and pets. <laughs> so, and everything in between. The way we do that is we have an all world set of operating partners uh, in our network, some of which are investors in our fund and others are just friends and supporters that lean in and help us both from a sourcing perspective and then also importantly from a diligence perspective uh, that can help us get smart on anything from deep tech investments to, um, you know, uh, these uh, alternative CPG companies that we've looked at. From a portfolio construction perspective, we set out thinking that our primary focus would be a million to a million and a half dollar seed check into a two and a half to four million dollar or two to three million dollar seed round. Uh, Our preference has always been to lead or co-lead. And with just a couple exceptions, uh, that has been the rule for our investments. Um, over the last couple of years that we've been deploying capital, though, we've actually shifted a little left. Um, we've actually engaged even earlier than we'd initially um, expected. And so we're finding ourselves spending more time uh, looking earlier. And so uh, we've done about as many or maybe even at this point more pre-seed investments, which for us is a smaller check to 250 to 500 into a round that might be 500 to a million dollars. Um, we think that we're really well built to engage that early uh, from the support and the help that we can uh, give a founder 
It gives us a competitive edge because it's a different risk uh, profile in engaging that early. And, um, you know, a lot of funds just don't want to, you know, be their pre-product or pre-revenue. Or in some cases, we've invested into just an LOI with no lines of code. And so <clears throat> I think from a portfolio construction perspective, we're going to be pretty balanced between engaging early at the pre-seed and at the traditional seed. Okay. Very cool. And then, so what is the genesis of wanting to lead? Um, because I have my experiences with that. I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, it's not, um, I promise you, it's not because we're egomaniacs and we just want our name in big font. It's not that at all. Uh, the reason we want to lead is because we want to have a different type of relationship with our founders. We truly want to be the first call, whether it's good news or bad news. We want to be a partner in the business uh, to our founders. Um, and so that starts with being of advice and counsel to them on the structure of the round. It's very often that we are walking uh, founders through our perspective, informed by all the deals that we've done and all the deals that we've seen as to what is the right amount of capital um, to, to raise in the round. How should you think about prioritizing your investments from the t- people that you add onto the team to how you think about layering out your go-to-market strategy? And so those types of conversations, as well as the post-investment engagement, we're on a weekly uh, cadence with the majority of our investments. And in some cases, we're in a bi-weekly or maybe if they're farther downstream, a monthly cadence of engagement with our, or our founding teams. And that really necessitates being in a lead position. Um, and so out of all of our deals, out of the 21 investments, we have two that were follow on. Uh, the rest were either lead or co-lead. Yeah. So uh, I, I definitely, you know, um, want to be the first call, good or bad news. I want to create the the um, the realm of a safe space for a founder. I mean, people ask me why I like to lead. Uh, and, you know, it's the, the narrative I used to say, which was true, um, is that wanted to be able to offer help. You know, you're actually in the room to know what's really going on, you know, from a board perspective um, versus, you know, just kind of being around uh, the hoop as a syndicate investor where like, okay, maybe the founder will talk to you once they need more money or they need a signature for something. And, you know, we I did that at a previous fund and it's just, I, I don't feel like it was a good look. But if I ultimately feel that, you know, why I truly want to be in a lead position. Like I'll, I'll say, Sean, I just don't want to get fucked. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I mean, like, I mean, that, that really is the only, I mean, like the, the true honest answer. And for a guy that's writing, you know, a one to $3 million check in companies that are raising two to 5 million in an undercapitalized market, like guys like you and me, we're, we're kind of hard to find. There's a lot of seed guys that are writing the 500 K checks and everyone's getting, you know, um, uh, you know, voting by consensus. Right. But there's not that many people that are going to stake their, their flag in the ground and lead. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was just doing a, a bit of a give first call with a founder right before this call, and he's raising one and a half million dollars. He's in Texas, uh, and he told me he has six to seven million dollars in follow on checks ready to just identify a lead. Right. And I, all he's looking for in a lead is a $750,000 check, and he's about 10x oversubscribed on the rest of it. And so it is difficult to find a lead. That is you know, really another reason why we set out the lead or co lead is it is not only difficult or historically difficult to get an institutional early check in our region, uh, it's been really difficult, extra difficult to find a lead or a co-lead. 
And, and other people that, that lead or co-lead, unless you have a previous relationship with, you don't really know what their investment risk profile is. You know, you don't really know anything. And you're kind of up to the whim of, you know, all the other people that are around the table, like filtering kind of advice into, you know, into a founder's ears that may or may not suit you and your shareholders. Yep. And we've seen it in all stripes. I will say that a big part of our days and our weeks is spent uh, cultivating relationships with other uh, same stage investors um, downstream investors. And so we're super collaborative by nature. Um, and like our relationships with the founders, we lean in heavily into our building our relationships with other investors. And so we are just as eager to co-lead with smart capital that we think can be value add for the founder and the business as we are to, to lead. Um, but in any case, in our, tr- in our typical deal that we've led, we've spoken for 81% of the round in our fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in reality, we've probably arranged on average 95% plus of the total capital that goes into the financing uh, just through our network. Um, we always want to leave a little bit there for the founder to bring in um, you know, folks that he'd like to see around the table. But our preference is to speak for the entirety of a round, uh, either directly through our founder, through you know, our trusted and vetted partners. Yeah, because you don't know who you're inviting into the hen house. Right. Exactly that. And we, we think that, you know, we earn, we have a lot to prove. Let me just say, I mean, uh, we have two funds now. Um, we've got just, we've had so much, uh, fun in the last couple of years. We've received tremendous validation, uh, from the community, from the founders, from other funds and our early results. Uh, we've got a handful of breakouts, which has been really exciting, but we still have a tremendous amount to prove. Um, and we want other investors around the table that are going to work as hard to prove their merit to these founders as we do every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So how did you, you know, I, I, I understand that you have, you know, a pre-seed and then also a seed fund to diversify from a stage perspective, what type of venture math did you use um, as a seed fund? That's not in a core market, right? Not that's going to have, uh, I mean, I think Atlanta's, you know, on its way to being a core market uh, for sure, based on how many billion dollar exits they've had in the last 12 to 18 months. Uh, but, you know, considering the exits regionally has, haven't been, you know, as substantial as, you know, say Silicon Valley or New York, how did you look at kind of looking at, you know, failure rates, you know, uh, the power law type dynamics within a venture portfolio? Yeah, you know, I think it's a good question. Um, and we just had our annual partner meeting the week before last, and we were studying our data probably even more closely than we would otherwise. Um, I, I think we set out to manage to a zero zeros fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, truly, um, we are, have a high engagement model. We enter with outsized checks and deep conviction, and we have a deep level of engagement. And with our founder operator backgrounds and experience, um, we feel like we we can fight for and return value from every one of our portfolio investments. Ultimately, we know that that's not necessarily reality. So far, we have no zeros, but we know that that's going to change at some point. Uh, but at the same time, we haven't set out to swing for the fences. Uh, this is a mm-hmm. fund one. We've got a lot to prove. We, like every fund one, we are aiming for a 3x net return to our shareholders and to hit that upper decile return. Um, but what we see in our portfolio has been really exciting. We do have a handful of breakouts. 
Um, we've got a few that we are optimistic, have a good shot of returning the fund. Um, and ultimately, I think we're going to look a lot different than the venture capital funds of early 2000 vintage, which was sort of the third, a third, a third, a third of zeros, a third, you know, return your money and a third that are 10x. And I think we're going to look different than a lot of the more recent funds that are really these power laws where you have the one outlier that's returning the entire fund. I think we're going to be somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. We're really uh, excited about, um, you know, our portfolio. Um, it's probably a little too much to share how we rank and we rate our portfolio, but this is an exercise we go through uh, regularly. Um, and we're definitely heavily skewed toward the at or above performance uh, part of the portfolio than the very few that would be at or below anticipated performance at this point. But again, it's early. And these things change quickly, as you know. Yeah, it's pretty stressful when you're burning over $100,000 a month in any situation, either on a good side or a bad side. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's true. Now, I will say, I mean, there was not a question, there was a comment. Um, we are very burn conscious, even in a less sketchy environment than we are right now. We have always looked for companies. We, listen, we're in the venture business, and we understand what it takes to make a successful venture company at scale. But at the same time, uh, we're both battle-scarred. We've you know, been here and been investors for a really long time. And we know that, you know, these these market dynamics can shift. And so we are burn conscious. And so for us in a pre-seed investment, um, you know, we are looking for, you know, that half million to a million dollars to last, um, you know, six to 12 months, maybe to 18 months, depending on uh, what milestones they have to prove to get to the seed round. The seed round, you know, I, we're, we're not investing into companies that we see that their strategy is relying on an inexhaustible pile of money um, and that are cash guzzlers uh, from now into forever. It's just not um, uh, the basis for most of the investments that we look at. And so we're burn conscious, um, um, you know, despite um, the dynamics, whether they're good times or bad times, it's something that we look at very carefully. Yeah. And, you know, I think especially in today's environment, that is extremely important. So being a seed investor that raised when um, things were probably nearing, you know, the proverbial top, right? You know, if we're considering this last shakeup of the last couple of months, now I know this is an evergreen show, but last couple of months where there's been a serious re-rating on growth stocks on the public side, um, you know, you've raised in the good times and now you're kind of at the situation where, you know, we don't know where the chips are going to fall on late stage venture and how that's going to trickle down. So how do you think about that from uh, a seed perspective? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, David Sachs uh, had a great quote that I read on Twitter a couple of weeks ago that when um, exit prices are good, entry prices are bad. And when entry prices are bad, exit prices are good or vice versa. I screwed that up. Sorry, David. Yeah, you can't um, buy it at a discount unless you sell at a discount. Yeah, too. right. <laughs> yeah, something like that. You know, the, the good news is, um, you know, we kind of do our own deal here. Um, we are um, uh, market buyers, but we're also uh, value conscious. Um, and so we set out with targets, ownership targets in the fund. Um, we initially said that uh, we're looking to own uh, double-digit percentage ownership of a company while it's in the seed stage. Um, and we're pretty darn close across our 21 
positions, our average ownership is around 9.9%. Mm-hmm. So, and that's a combination where, you know, if it's the right deal, the right setup, a particular industry that's hot, and perhaps they're a little bit farther along in their traction uh, than our typical engagement, we'll certainly stretch um, on valuation for the right deal. But on average, we're not, you know, we're not the fund that's just writing a check into a, you know, $30 million pre-seed valuation. It's just not us. Uh, You know, so, um, you know, we we have not seen um, price compression or value compression in our stage yet. Uh, What we have seen is a bit of a lengthening of the time it's taken for some of these rounds to get closed. Uh, We're certainly paying uh, attention to the dynamics uh, that are already starting to trickle into the A round. Carta published some data on January and February financings uh, last week that were super interesting around uh, the compression against uh, the median and average uh, valuation for series A through C. Um, And it's pretty significant uh, how much it's changed uh, in just a short three or four month period. We haven't seen that yet, um, in our part of the market, but it will likely come. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like, I, I, despite how obvious it was that this was going to come, like it still was a big smack in the mouth. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, I think so. I think um, there's a lot of structural reasons why, you know, um, obviously ventures category continues to grow. Um, and it's still relatively small, right? I mean, we're celebrating hundreds of billions um, in venture capital. But when you come from a public equity background and public markets background where you see tens of trillions of dollars invested, it's really, you know, still a very small overall asset class relative to uh, the investable dollar. Um, We've also seen um, a big change in um, the not only the amount of capital uh, that's out there on the sidelines and ready to invest, but the various uh, new sources of capital. Uh, for um, <clears throat> for founders to consider um, and the capital dynamics, whether it's hybrid uh, funds that are doing both late stage and early stage or public market and private market um, or some of the rolling funds that are happening, some of the syndicates um, opportunities that are happening, whether it's the RUVs or the angel syndicates that are coming along. There's just lots of cop, uh, cash out there. There's lots of optionality. And so even though I think many of us who've been investing for a long time saw these early warning indicators that things were getting a little bit out of control on a valuation perspective, there was just so much liquidity and still is so much liquidity um, that you just kind of have to hold your nose. And if you want to be in the game, you've got to participate, but you've got to choose. Yeah, you can't not invest, right? right? I mean, or take calls. I mean, that's because nobody can time this stuff and you're going to miss out on great companies. Yeah, ultimately we're paid to allocate capital. That's what we're here to do. We're not paid to be a bank and just, you know, um, you know earn a you know, small interest rate. I mean, we're here to deploy capital. It's risk capital. Uh, and so we do our best to... Find founders who view uh, our value add um, um, in a way that enables us to uh, lean in uh, as a lead to support them, but also at the same time uh, to hit our ownership targets, which are important to us. I should mention that in our seed fund, we only invest during the seed stage. And so our pro rata rights in the Series A and beyond 
um, are reserved for our uh, opportunity fund, um, or in some cases, uh, we will uh, spin up an SPV for our partners. But in the fund itself, it's specifically stage focused. And so we know that there's going to be a lot of downstream uh, dilution. And so we really, you know, are, are very um, price conscious on our first checks to make sure that we get our ownership targets so that we can withstand that dilution downstream. Which plays into the narrative of, or the ethos, I should say, not the narrative, the ethos of Overline, which is high conviction, lots of work, not not uh, a spray and pray index. Yeah, we're definitely not index buyers. Um, we are probably net uh, more portfolio companies in our seed fund uh, than we set out for. <clears throat> we initially modeled 18 to 20. Now it's feeling like it's going to be 25 to 28. Um, because of the fact that we are engaging earlier and we're just making more bets. Um, and But each one of those goes through a diligence process. We're go slow investors by nature. Um, we can move quickly uh, because the market demands that and we want to be competitive. But the best relationships one uh, for us are the ones where we have an op- opportunity to meet the founding team early, to invest in building relationship to really get to know them, uh, for them to get to know us um, and to build that relationship over time outside of the time pressures of a, a funding event. Um, but it enables us to get deeper conviction. Uh, one thing that we're starting to do, um, David, is uh, even though we're a generalist fund, we're starting to uh, develop uh, points of view and perspectives on certain industries, which is going to enable us to move even more quickly. Um, and with deep conviction into trends that are really interesting to us. Uh, we could talk about those if, if, if you're interested in them. I am interested in that. Yeah. So, you know, as soon as you do one deal uh, in a space or sector, especially a visible one, you see a lot of similar type companies. And so for us being in the epicenter of a lot of global logistics, tech innovation, um, and with one of our early uh, winners and breakouts being um, um, a, f- a fintech or payments company for logistics, uh, Relay Payments, which you can think of as a Venmo for trucking and logistics. Um, we've seen a lot in that space. And so, in fact, at our partner meeting, we just had an absolute all-world um, panel that was moderated by Mark Gorlin, founder of uh uh, Rody that sold to um, UPS. Uh, we had Sean Henry, who's the founder of Stored. Uh, we had Tyler Scriven, who's the founder of Saltbox. Um, and we had Ryan Drogi, who is the founder, co-founder of, um, of Relay Payments. And they were talking about the future of logistics. And so being here, having a couple of logistics companies in the portfolio, having the perspective of the operating partners and the people in our network who are really on the cutting edge of defining what logistics is going to look like into the future um, has enabled us to get really deep on perspectives of what's going to change. And so that's something that we screen for. Uh, We've also seen a lot uh, in automotive technology and mobility. Um, One of our anchor investors is Cox Enterprises and Cox Automotive is one of the biggest players in that space. Um, We also have some background uh, in that space. We've got a great investment uh, in a company called Hopdrive um, that you can think about as a gig economy 
um, a platform for moving cars, not people. So they do concierge pickup and delivery um, so that you don't have to go into the service station and have your car serviced and sit in the waiting room drinking stale coffee and watching Sally Jesse Raphael, but you can be at home or at work and somebody that's trusted and vetted can come get your car and deliver it. Um, but since we did that deal, we've seen lots and lots in automotive tech and mobility that we're uh, interested in. And so uh, we've also built um, a, a portfolio with a couple of investments in reg tech and some of the changes that are happening in highly regulated industries or work processes uh, where you might have an enterprise staff, whether it's in privacy or whether it's in HR, uh, that's supported uh, by outside counsel with a dynamic and changing regulatory environment with business process that is very complex and typically manual. And so we've got a bit of a theme there. So in our next fund, we'll likely be investing into a few themes while maintaining this generalist umbrella. Uh, and we think that that's gonna enable us to differentiate ourselves um, by being able to move more quickly and even with deeper conviction going into that first meeting. Yeah, uh, being a, um, a generalist, I find is extremely difficult. Um, you're much more likable than I am, so you have a much bigger network uh, than I do. I don't know about that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've, you know, what I've relied on too, this is like a great hack. Have you ever heard of GuidePoint? No, what is that? I like that. It's the, yeah, no, it's the expert network, right? And you pay like, uh, like $750 for a call. And they give you like C-level or, you know, um, you know, buying decisions of people that will buy a software that you're trying to like break into. And, and you just, you know, you spend and you could talk about the market. You could talk about how they think of ROI and value. And it literally has been a game changer for a generalist because oftentimes, you, you know, you have networks, but do you really know that that person would be a buying person of, you know, said software? Yeah. Well, I will say that Michael and I rely heavily on our network that we've cultivated uh, independently and collectively for decades. Um, and, you know, we have, I would guess, 40 operating partners today. And these are, you know, founders of, you know, you know, very large businesses, successful startups, current operating uh, startups. It's people who are uh, deep domain experts in either functions within a, a business and marketing or in go to market or product uh, or industries. And so at this point, we have not yet been totally stymied uh, in any company that we've been trying to research. No, that's great. And, and candidly, I'll, I'll say, you know, David, one of the big markers that we look for is our ability to be value add and to be more than just a check. And so one of the most common reasons that we will pass on an investment is if- You can't validate it. Exactly. Because we know that if we can't validate it, if we don't have the, the bench strength in our, in our network to actually get smart and really develop deep conviction, then we're not gonna be able to lean in and help. Other than just you know company building, which is important, sourcing talent is important, putting in internal processes and building teams and building culture is important, but we really want to be able to materially bend the needle of performance in our portfolio, which starts with our, you know, industry and our networks, industry connections and our ability to truly help. Awesome. And so when you, I want to go a little bit back to your conviction bets and seed, because I love that concept, right? Um, like really leaning in, you know, taking a position of, of influence on a cap table 
earlier stage becoming a cemented piece of, of, of framework or, or foundation for a founder and for a company to come to and to use as a resource. How do you think about future dilution? Um, like, like what, what, what's the math tell you that you're going to be diluted, you know, through a B, B C, D, E round? Uh, yeah. So we look at NVCA data and we look at the average dilution uh, for each round of financing based on the prior 12 months. We use that from a modeling perspective to model out into the future. And in the seed fund, we're underwriting every investment to a 10x return profile um, net of all the dilution. And so it is a bit of a math mech, math exercise, um, but it's one that we're happy. I mean, we're happy to do. Yeah. And when you're modeling out a seed stage company, let's say it's in a vertical, I don't even know if you'd like vertical SaaS, but um, a vertical SaaS type solution where, you know, early traction and ACV is, you know, is fuzzy, right? right. You know, you know uh, how do you think about market size and doing that when, you know, a market might not be that big from initial product, initial go to market? And then how do you think about kind of TAM expansion over time? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I'm going to answer your question in a second, but let me say if we also do consumer. And so we have a couple of consumer social and a consumer um, products company that's a D2C model. If we're looking at anything consumer, we need more traction. We need um, more traction partly because, you know, the proof points are more severe in the consumer name in our experience. And our experience is more skewed toward enterprise. Uh, and we're just more comfortable with the scaling dynamics over there. When it comes to B2B SaaS, we will look at vertical um, SaaS um, if we believe strongly that it can be a winner-take-all or a winner-take-most market and that we have the strong horse, right, where it's a 10x better experience that not only is than what is already there and available uh, to the buyer, but that we think that there's some defensible mode. Um, but we would do a sub-billion dollar market where a lot of VCs would shy away from any market that's not multiples of billions. Um, we do have companies that start as, you know, proving out in one vertical um, and a path and a plan to get to replicating that vertical once they get through the milestones of their seed round. Um, so we do have a couple of companies who are, uh, deeply vertically focused, but that have intention to expand out to adjacent uh, verticals once they get uh, the next round of financing. Um, and so, yeah, we, we think about it all the time. We also think about ACV um, as an enterprise it, uh, SaaS investor. You know, we look for a minimum of sort of couple, three, four grand per month in AC or in MRR, um, but we ultimately are trying to target, you know, six figure ACV on average for the invest investments. And so we work with founders to really understand how they're going to, you know, get deeper wallet share and sort of how they're going to expand the number of users within the enterprise and the number of applications or modules or the breadth of the solution uh, that they're going to be selling uh, to their buyer. So do you think that uh, over time, as you start generating great returns for your investors and you raise bigger funds, that you're going to go up market and start doing Series A checks? Or do you feel just that you and you know your partner and Overline really just excels in seed? You know, we are built for seed. You know, we love it. Um, you know, it's a very hands-on part of the, um, you know, 
capital stack. And um, that's where Michael and I get the most joy. Um, we think that there's a lot of alpha available there um, if you've got a hands-on approach because we not only pick great companies, but we like to think that we can help make them into even greater companies uh, through the engagement of our operating partners and our personal time and attention. Um, you know, Series A is a different uh, investment. Um, it, it's just different altogether. And they're phenomenal Series A investors out there. And so our opportunity fund which invests in later stages, um, you know, we will invest into Series A and beyond in our portfolio breakouts. Um, if we're looking at a first check from the Opportunity Fund into a, a breakout in the community, it's in all likelihood not going to be a Series A. It's going to be when it's a little bit farther along, a little bit uh, further de-risked, and it's going to be a follow-on check. And so it's hard to say what the future holds, but at least for the foreseeable future, our focus will be finding great founders very early in their journey, being the first trusted source of institutional capital and being a partner to them in that sort of zero to X million dollar uh, run rate versus coming in at the Series A and picking mm-hmm. up from there. Yeah. And then, so how do you set the stage for founders that you're courting? And, you know, by the way, I completely agree with you about, you know, wanting to to spend time with these guys prior to actually investing. And I think, you know, for me and a lot of venture capitalists, I mean, there's just, I mean, I get, I get antsy about wanting to transact and like spending the time with founders earlier and taking those calls and seeing how they progress over time. Like that's one of the only things you can do only levers that you can pull as an early stage investor in the, in the C, you know, in the pre-investment type of diligence process is to see really how do people act over time, right? Not just, you know, right when they're at your sweet spot. And so, um, you know, managing pipeline to that effect of seeing guys that are super early and then seeing guys that are, you know, you know, a little bit more qualified to transact today, I think is super important. So when you, when you think about like, you know, going into and working with founders, um, how do you set the stage for the overlying platform and saying that, you know, we are not your typical investor that's just syndicating and, you know, I hope everything works well. We're not a spray and pray. We have operating partners. We're going on a cadence. How do you, how do you, how do you present that to a founder? And um, how do you know like that a founder is a good overlying portfolio CEO? You know, I would say uh, we laid out just like you just laid it out, David. Candidly, we're direct talkers. I mean, we believe and we value authenticity above everything else and transparency. And so we're just a couple normal dudes. I think it might be also because we're building here in the Southeast and people are just more accustomed to direct communication. Um, and so we, uh, we, share, uh, you know, about our philosophy and the way we think about investments. And, you know, we want to be, you know, a partner to support them on their journey. Um, I think my partner, Michael, is fond of saying um, that a good VC is like an API. You just make a call and you get results. And that's the way we like to be. So we just say it just simply like that. And some founders resonate with that and others don't. Um, You know, some founders just um, you know, value the capital and they have a very clear plan uh, and strategy for going and uh, conquering the world. And many, many of them are successful. And I'm not saying that we wouldn't back uh, some of those founders. Uh, 
but the, uh, they would be more the exception. The traditional founder that we're looking for, um, we're looking for a founder that values the help that network and platform can bring. Um, and that values sort of having a community of other founders that are highly engaged um, around them and that value things like the content and the connections uh, that we make available to our founders. And I think, you know, um, you think, you know, really, really early, uh, at least that's my mm-hmm. experience. Both sides know whether it's a vet, if not on the first call, certainly by the second call, um, you know very clearly um, if it's going to be a match. And then, you know, like you said, it's over time. Uh, Michael is fond of sharing just a fabulous um, blog post by Mark Suster, one of the legend early stage investors, seed investors out there called Lines Not Dots, uh, just about uh, plotting performance over time uh, relative to the milestones or expectations that a founder um, lays out. And we're very much of that methodology. We would like to see the progress over time relative to the expectations uh, that founders have laid out for themselves. Because there's a there's a, a a really affable character, I think, in founders and great founders um, that are open and emotionally intelligent enough to have dialogue with other people. Because I mean, don't li- I mean forget listening to me. Like I'm. I'm the last person you should be listening to, but you know, it's a good litmus test is like, do you listen? Not because of me, but do you listen to your employees? Do you listen to your customers? Or are you just running something completely on your own, you know, uh, on your own framework? Right. Yeah. It's something we look for is active listening. Um, you know, one of the things that I learned early is uh, listening with the intent to be influenced and, which is even a little bit different slant on active listening. It's really trying to help the person who you're speaking with convince you of their side and being really that open. Um, and um, we, we value that greatly. Uh, like you said, it's not just us or the operating partners or friends or network that we put around the founders, but are they listening to their people? Are they uh, dismissing their competitors? Are they really looking at and studying and understanding the competitive dynamics? Are they, do they have blinders on? Or are they, um, are they, are their, um, strong convictions loosely held? Or are they just rigid and inflexible and they're holding on to it and very, you know, super, uh, dug in on their positions? And so we don't, we haven't yet built out a, um, quantitative framework like some other seed investors have where they'll have a 35-point plan and a, a way that they measure against those 35. We haven't done that, um, but Michael and I take very deep and detailed notes uh, on every founder meeting, um, and we've sort of gotten into a rhythm where we test whether or not a founder would be a good fit for the type of capital that we're looking to deliver. And again, we're only one source of capital, so I should say that whether it's a fit for us doesn't mean it's not an investable business or not going to go on to be a great success whatsoever. It's just whether we're the right partner. And yeah, it's a market. It's a market. And there's tons and tons of capital out there. And the, the reality is we've seen a couple thousand, maybe 2,500 uh, companies, and we've made 22 investments across the, the two funds. I mean, it's, you know, we are not the perfect fit for every founder and not every founder is um, the perfect fit for us. It's just, like you said, it's a market. And then last question before we kind of wrap up with our um, standard questions. I love the stuff you put on LinkedIn. 
Um, you know, how has content creation with you and a personal brand with you and Overline kind of manifested itself? Um, you know, like, how do you think about that? Yeah, you know, David, I, I don't know how to think about it. Honestly, I never intended really to be out on LinkedIn. I'm not a social media consumer in my personal life. The um, That really came out of my partner, who's a genius marketing mind. He was like, we should probably tell people what we're doing. I was like, That's so wrong. <laughs> right. I mean, we've got so many cool things going on and we're so excited about what we're doing. But, you know, really for the first year, we were sort of operating in a bit of a vacuum. Um, and just focused on execution and focused on all the building. And Michael said, hey, we should probably let people know what we're doing. I was like, okay, let me try this LinkedIn thing. So I have been out there and I've been active over the last year. It's been hugely rewarding. I'm, uh, I'm not going to lie. It's been awesome. It works. It works. The amount of inbound that we've generated, the amount of um, – I will tell you, I, I was having dinner with a friend of mine the other night, and he asked me if I ha- had somebody – managing my social media. <laughs> and that was like a stab in the heart. And I was like, does it sound like, he was like, well, I just wasn't quite sure. And this is a guy who used to work for me on my team and used to write content for me. I was like, does this not feel authentic? So it's caused me, the reason I paused there, it's caused me to go back and really reflect on, I'm not really naturally really great at doing that kind of stuff. And so I think sometimes I've lost my own authentic voice by trying to write in a certain way. But I will tell you, it's been great. We can't wait to do more of it. We're going to launch a blog at some point, and I can't wait for that because I personally prefer writing long form, longer form content, you know, four to 800 words uh, than these short, sort of short uh, LinkedIn stuff. But, um, you know, one of the things that we're keen on doing is open source in our entire process so that people know before the first call, who we are, what we stand for, what we screen for, and what we think would make a successful match uh, with Overline. Yeah, you know, I think as an emerging, you know, VC myself, and, you know, I would say kind of a neophyte content creator with the podcast and my newsletter, it's, um, there's very few things you can do to scale as a solo GP. Right. (laughs) You know, and so doing this, you know, I mean, like, and you just get better at it over time, I feel. Like, I was a terrible writer. Now I'm, like, a less terrible writer. But, you know, I'm getting stuff out a little bit more continuously, and it's, at least it's readable. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just it's just being disciplined enough to, to – I mean, I'm having the thoughts anyway. Just clarify the thoughts and, you know, put it on paper or put it on the microphone and, and you know, put it out there and see if anyone likes it. Yeah. And I think we all have to look at ourselves through the same lens that we look at our founders, which is just ship it. You'll be embarrassed, mm-hmm. of course, but just ship it. You'll get better and just ship. And we got to continuously ship. And yeah, that's good inspiration. Cool. Uh, all right. So a couple of canned questions for you. What is your favorite book? Oh, gosh. Um, I didn't know there were going to be canned questions. That's really hard because I read a book every two weeks uh, in my book club. Mm-hmm. What's your what's your best what's your best book that you've read recently? I should say. Um, hmm, I'm eighty. Um, gosh, I can't. I, I really that gosh, that's a really hard. Um, that's a really hard question. Um, just because I have lots of favorites and I read tons of business books. My favorite business book that I'm reading right now, I have it right here, is The Changing World Order by Ray Dalio. It's amazing and it's terrifying <laughs> it's amazingly terrifying the amount of work i'm so in awe on um uh, the amount of work that he's done probably the biggest 
the most impactful book that I've read was when I was leaving PGI and figuring out what was next. I read a book by David Brooks called uh, The Road to Character, um, which just, you know, for a man of my age, um, just had a deep impact and a personal impact on the trajectory of how I wanted to spend the back half of my life. And so, but other than that, I love books. I'm in a fabulous book club and it's a highlight every two weeks when we get together on a Sunday evening and talk about the book that we read. So. Cool. And then uh, what is the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Uh, without a doubt, the best piece of business advice I got from one of my early mentors, which is that you don't have to leave your heart at home when you go to work every day. And so I'm just naturally an enthusiastic guy. I'm naturally an optimist and I care deeply about the people that I work with uh, and I work to support. And I think when I was early in my career, I tried to put on this sort of affectation about, yeah, I'm just a business guy and, you know, I'm here for work and it's not personal. And it was so just not authentic to who I am as a person. And he was like, you know, turn that from something that you're hiding from into a superpower and just lean into it. What, you know, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with caring deeply about and being passionate about what you're doing and about the people that you're doing it with. And so uh, without a doubt, that has been the most impactful uh, life advice and business advice I've ever gotten. Uh, and are there any investors or innovators that you like to follow online? Uh, yeah, you know, I do. Um, I follow a wide uh, swath of investors, some of which I agree with um, and some of which I really don't agree with. I think taking signal from other investors um, is a really important part of um, what we do as investors. I, I'm really partial to, I, I really uh, like Josh Wolf at Lux Capital. I read everything he writes that I can get my hands on. I think what they've built there over the last couple of decades is just super impressive. And I'm in all sorts of awe of the type of work he does. Uh, and then pretty much every household name that you can mention uh, in early stage investing, um, I likely read, um, you know, whatever they put out. It's a big part of how I spend my mornings every morning. Cool. Awesome. Well, John, thank you so much for coming down and or coming on. And uh, hopefully we'll get you back on uh, at a later date. Thanks, David. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Thanks, everybody. This is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack Podcast, where we talk to uh, entrepreneurs, founders, and tech investors. If you like what you heard, please download, leave a review. We also just launched a YouTube site where you can actually see these interviews in person uh, and see how incredibly good-looking my guests are. And uh, if you like it, please subscribe, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.